A hiding bane of green-barked yew supports the sky. Beautiful spot. The large green of an oak fronting the storm. A tree of apples great its bounty, like a hostel vast. A pretty bush thick as a fist of tiny hazelnuts and green mass of branches. A choice pure spring and princely water to drink. Their watercress, yew berries, ivy bushes thick as a man. Around it tame swine lie. Goats, pigs, wild swine, grazing deer, a badger's brood, a beautiful troop, a heavy host of denizens of the soil, a trysting at my house, to them foxes come. An extract from The Hermit and the King, a medieval Irish poem from the 10th century, translated by Kuno Mayer in 1911. This is From the Roots. I'm Orla Nigul. Let's talk about the past 13,000 years of natural history in Ireland. When we talk about Ireland's ecosystems and native species as we understand them today, we're only talking about a period of time after the last Ice Age. Before that point, the landscape of the island was radically altered during what's called the last glacial maximum, when the ice sheets were at their biggest, between 26 and 20,000 years ago. Ireland would have been mostly covered in one of these huge sheets. Those ice sheets began retreating, shaping a lot of Ireland's hills and valleys on their way to the sea and leaving behind tundra. Tundra is what we call the type of biome or environment similar to around the Arctic that's treeless and the subsoil stays mostly frozen. Vegetation stays low to the ground in those conditions, lichens and mosses playing an important part. Around 13,000 years ago, the first trees like junipers started to grow. Birch, hazel and alders were also vital early pioneers of woodland and eventually forest is thought to have covered 80% of the island's landmass. Another effect of the melting glaciers was large lakes and bodies of still water left over in low-lying areas, particularly in the Midlands, that would turn into the raised bogs that the Midlands are now so associated with. A combination of mud and silt on the bottom of those lakes formed a kind of seal that cut the lake off from the water table underneath. As vegetation in the lake became thicker, so did the layers of dead and dying organic material at the bottom, building up until the lake developed peat. A lot of the plants that were involved in the early stages of forming raised bogs are still important wildflowers found across the country, like water lilies, hornwort, meadowsweet, marsh marigold, cuckoo flower and bog bean. The second main type of bog in Ireland is blanket bog, which started to develop around 9,000 years ago. This landscape type is often attributed to human settlers deforesting these areas, but technically they began to develop before that. Blanket bogs occur in coastal upland areas with high rainfall. The Irish uplands at that time had a lot of what we now call Scots pine, which thrives in poor soil, which slowed the spread of those blanket bogs. Neolithic farmers are thought to be at least partially responsible for the near regional extinction of Scots pine, which then did allow those blanket bogs to spread. Ireland's peatlands are internationally significant, despite the fact that we have cut them for fuel for hundreds of years. And they're also iconic to how Irish people picture our own landscapes. Peatlands are one of the most important carbon sinks and they help prevent flooding, which is why damage to them can have so many knock-on effects. The earliest human settlements found so far are in the north and west coast of Ireland and date between 9 and 7,000 years ago. 
It's important to recognize how little relative time the ecosystems of Ireland developed after the Ice Age before the arrival of humans. As well as contributing to the spread of blanket bogs, early farmers and their settlements also cleared land which would go on to create other iconic Irish habitats, like heaths and semi-natural grasslands. Written sources for Ireland don't appear until the early medieval period, which again, from the standard of the kind of geological time we're discussing, is very recent. Many place names, both in Old Irish and Norse, reference forests and trees. Like the 10th century poem I opened the episode with, the early Christian church in Ireland looked a lot to nature for its philosophical understandings of God. Take the story of St. Kevin sitting in the woods of Glendalough until the wild creatures came and settled all around him. All this to say that Ireland was still seen as highly forested throughout the medieval period until at least the 15th century. The first complete map of Ireland was the Down Survey, carried out in the 17th century. It was created in order to allocate land to soldiers who had fought for Cromwell in his 1649 invasion of Ireland. That map shows an island with significantly reduced forest cover, but still with woodlands in every county, and in particular along waterways and rivers. Disappearing forest in that period meant the extinction of larger forest animals like wild boar and wolves, and even the red squirrel, which was reintroduced from Britain in the late 19th century. So what led to this deforestation? The simple answer is the need for agricultural land, but human history rarely lets simple answers sit. When discussing the impact of colonialism on the Irish landscape, the focus tends to be on timber felling for shipbuilding. The infamous East India Company established a shipyard in Cork in 1613, This idea comes across in a poem most Irish language speakers would know at least the first two lines of, which laments the destruction of woodlands on the Butler estate in Tipperary in the late 18th century. Certainly shipbuilding and colonial timber extraction played its part, but so did agriculture. The question is whether that agricultural practice was equally influenced by colonialism as forestry. The style of colonialism practiced in Ireland focused around what is called the big house, an aristocratic landlord estate where one family held ownership over a large area of land and all the farmers were merely tenants. This not only meant that farmers were in a very insecure position because they didn't have many rights to their own home or land if there was a bad harvest and they couldn't pay rent, but another sizable portion of the population were what's called landless labourers who worked on the estates but subsisted off whatever they could grow on a very small garden plot. This was in contrast to Britain where, There was also an aristocracy and tenant farming, but farms were larger and urban centres more developed. These differences in development were deliberately fostered. Families getting by on subsistence farming use land a lot less efficiently than fewer, larger farms feeding into villages and towns. By the 1800s, Ireland had a population of nearly 9 million, so you could imagine the impact that would have on land use under that model. In my mind, there's a certain symmetry to the imperialism that led to the deforestation of Ireland and the imperialism that led to the famine. Ungerthamore, meaning the Great Hunger, is a period from 1845 to 1852. It's well known that that decade of starvation, disease and mass emigration began with a series of failed harvests caused by potato blight and the callous disregard of the landlord system for its dying tenants. There is some debate among historians about just how much food continued to be exported from Ireland during that decade, but regardless of the figures, it was exported. 
More than just taking food out of the country, though, it's worth thinking about how that model of farming, pushing tenants onto worse land and less land, privileging large herds of estate-owned grazing livestock or deer, created the conditions for that crisis in the first place. So that by the turn of the 20th century, Ireland had both 6 million less people and 1% remaining forest cover. I make these points because there's often a drive in scientific fields to claim a separation between science and politics. Without a social-political understanding of Ireland's history, however, the ecological history is incomplete. Ignoring the impacts of humans on nature and of natural environments on humans is disingenuous and, in this case, I think, irresponsible. Contemporary Ireland has a growing population again, but the distribution of that population is far more focused on urban centres. Agriculture is still one of the largest industries and the biggest impact on land use outside of those cities, both positively and negatively. Nearly every episode of this podcast will touch on agriculture in some way or other. The next episode comes back to the topic I'm best known for recently, forests and woodlands. Woodlands are vitally important for biodiversity, for carbon storage, for flood reduction, and for more than I can squeeze in here at the end, but it isn't as simple as walking outside and planting trees anywhere and everywhere. We have other fragile ecosystems that can be negatively impacted by artificial tree planting. There's contradictory policies in commercial forestry, there's issues of invasive species, pests and diseases coming in on imported plants, not to mention people running scams in the name of carbon offsetting. So lots to unpick. Episode four is very directly about agriculture because I'll be talking about nitrogen fertilizers, why they're used, the issues with rising prices and the impact on Ireland's carbon emissions as well as water quality. Episode five will break down the laws and state agencies that deal with different parts of the environment, including the agricultural sector. And then in episode six, I'll be talking about invasive species. And so coming back to the influence of the big house and their introduction of invasive exotics and what we're not doing about them in the current day. Thanks for listening. From the Roots podcast is not associated with any groups, and any opinion which inevitably shapes the information provided is entirely my own. It's published under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial 4.0 International Public License. Music